Welcome to the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center Equity Spotlight Podcast. This podcast series will feature the center's equity fellows, national scholars from North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Minnesota, Iowa, Missouri, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, and Ohio who are working to advance equitable practices within school systems. Each episode will focus on a topic relevant to ensuring equitable access and participation in quality education for historically marginalized students, specifically in the areas of race, sex, national origin and religion, and at the intersection of socioeconomic status. Hey there, this is Federico Gaitoller. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Special Education at the University of Illinois at Chicago. In the last years, I have engaged in various research projects to understand how students of color with disabilities are served through school choice programs, particularly in charter schools. I've been fascinated by this topic. And what happened in Chicago at the end of 2018 and beginning of 2019 really got me off guard. Today, workers at a stellar charter school, the teachers, the education support personnel are on strike for a fair contract. We intend to stay on strike until we receive justice for the people who go to our schools and the people who work in our schools. We showed up to our campuses around Chicago at 6 a.m. this morning to protest the misuse of funds that Acero has been imposing on our district. Um, we are low on special education teachers. We have way too many kids in each class. Um, we aren't receiving the support that we need. With help of Chicago Teachers Union, charter school teachers in various charter campuses began to unionize. In December 2018, Acero Charter hold a four-day strike that includes 550 teachers and assistants. In February 2019, Various campuses of the Chicago International Charter School, including Ellison High School, Rywood Elementary School, and Northtown Academy High School, also stroke for 14 days. In May 2019, Latino Youth High School, Institute of Justice and Leadership Academy, and Institute of Health Sciences Career Academy hold a three-day strike. What was interesting about these strikes was not that teachers were fighting for better salaries and better working conditions. They were, of course, but at the core of all these claims, there were special education services and claims and demands to improve the services for students with disabilities in charter schools. This is very interesting for two reasons, at least. One, charter school critics have criticized charter schools for being a conservative movement trying to weaken unions. Second, charter schools have been also critiqued for underserving students with disabilities and even sometimes counseling them out so they don't have to serve them. And here you have both things coming together. Teachers are unionizing and they're fighting for special education services. So what does an educational researcher like me Thus, when these interesting events happen, I go and talk to more people. So I sit down with two teachers that were involved in the teacher strikes. And I ask them questions like why special education was a central piece? What do they want? What do they learn? And what did they recommend for others advocating for special education 
services in charter schools and beyond. What you hear after this is my conversation with these two teachers. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, we're here with two of the teachers who were involved in some of the charter strikes that happened uh, this year and at the end of last year in Chicago. Um, can you tell us your name? Yeah, my name is Elizabeth. Um, Elizabeth, uh, tell us a little about you. Um, how many years have you been in teaching and how did you end up in a charter school? Yeah, so this is actually my first year as a teacher. I'm a special education teacher um, for high school students. Um, and how I ended up in a charter school was uh, because everything was so new to me, like my experience to teaching, um, I wanted to navigate different systems. Um, and the first thing that kind of I gravitated towards was charter because there's always a lot of different speculations of what it's like to work at a charter school. So I kind of wanted to experience that for myself, um, figure out if they were true, if they weren't. Um, and so when I started my process of you know, becoming a teacher and figuring out my placement, I wanted to go to a charter uh, system first to see what it was all about. So you were telling me um, that you started, you wanted to, to try this new type. What, what was about charters that piqued your interest? It was, you know, they, they say they're famous for flexibility mm -hmm. and you know, um, innovative ways. I mean, does any of that grab your attention or was something else? Um, I think for me it was, um, because I am a special education teacher, um, it was their, the way they brand their programs, right? So like charters are supposed to um, take in students regardless of whether they have disabilities or not. Like obviously some of them have like lottery systems, um, but when it comes to the special education like system, um, they're notorious for like being out of compliance most of the time, um, not providing like the resources that the students um, require. So that's really where I gravitated towards right like once I realized like okay you're becoming a special education teacher um, they're you know known for like breaking those laws more than anyone and I was like well let's see how how bad is it really like how bad can you get um, um, you know I've had teachers that taught at charter schools that you know would talk a lot about um, feeling defeated and not being heard to like provide for their students and so I wanted to go into it um, what better way to disrupt the system than from inside so you went with the attitude of Let's change this. Yes. These people need me. Something like that. I mean, I was a first-year teacher, so it was still very much of, like, I have a lot to learn, but, um, you know, coming in fresh and new, like, let's get ready to fight. Yeah. Um, and tell me a bit about the, the school that you, that you work with, a bit about your students. I mean, you don't need to tell me the name of the school, but tell me about the students that you serve, where are they coming from, the demographics. Yeah, so I teach at a school, um, the demographics are predominantly Latinx, it's in a Latinx community. Um, I teach in an alternative high school, so I serve students from ages 16 to 21. Um, and so they come into our school with different types of trauma, whether that's trauma from their household or trauma from their previous schools. Um, and then um, they also, what was I gonna say? Yeah, so like they have like different types of like trauma. Um, my school is pretty small, so on mm. average we have about I think this school year it's about ninety to hundred students. Um, so it's a pretty total. Yes, total. Oh wow! So it's a really small school. Um, so just this school year, from the ninety students we serve, twenty five of them receive services, um, whether that was through five hundred fours or IEPs. Hold on, so you have only hundred students. Mm -hmm. 
and 29 of them have IEPs. 25. So we have like 24% students with disabilities. Like yep. a fourth of the school has students with disabilities. Yeah. Wow, okay. And one sped teacher. <laughs> and one sped teacher, okay. Just one. Um, at least we have one, right? Um, and so yeah, they, they have really different like types of traumas that we have to like navigate before we can even get to like the academics. Um, I mean, the one thing I do have to say is that they're, they're amazing, each and every one of them. Um, one of the things that we are very proud of at our school is like the relationship that we build with our students. So like even right now, it's just, I mean, I was in a group chat with them and we're like constantly texting. So we really see our school as like we're family hmm. because we are so small. Um, and that's what gives me more of like that flyer to like really fight for their rights. Um, students that receive services and students that, you know, that don't. So is this a charter, you don't need to say the name, but is it part of a network or is it a standalone charter school? Standalone. Standalone, okay. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't have a connection with any, any other charter schools? No. Okay. And it seems it's very community oriented for what you say. Mm -hmm. I mean, that they pretty involved in the community or? Um, we have been in the past involved with like the um, organizations around our community, like our students um, always, you know, like would volunteer, um, you know, the people in the neighborhood would come to like the events for like the students. Um, this year we kind of fell off a little bit just because there was a change in admin um, and like trying to figure out who was in charge really of the, of the school. Um, and so that kind of deterred a lot of like the community base, but we're hoping to get back to it. And the students that you serve there, I mean, you have 25% of students with IPs. Um, can you give me like an idea? I was talking about, are you serving severe disabilities or just students with learning disabilities, emotional behavioral disorders? Um, most of our students are learning disability and then there's a couple with like social emotional um, disabilities, but none of them have, you know, like severe. Hmm. So we're also with another teacher that was part of the strike. Uh, tell me a little bit about you, how many years have you been in teaching, um, and how you ended up in a charter school? Um, I've been teaching almost about 10 years, um, all in the little village Pilsen area with mostly Latino population, um, high population of ELL students. Um, right now my caseload is around 14 students at ISHCA, um, Instituto Health and Career Science Academy. Um, I do a mixture of co-teaching and self-contained. And you say 25, is that kind of the, the entire IEP population in your school? or? Um, our school is a high population of students with disabilities. I think it's approximately 20 to 25 percent at okay, least. Okay, so similar. And how many students total in your school? Um, of Oh, overall students? Um, approximately 750, I want to say. Okay, much larger. Mm -hmm. okay. Yes. Um, and tell me about the schools, I mean, what kind of students do they serve? Is this mostly a, a Latino, a, a, a mixed demographic school? or? Um, it's over 90, 95% Latino um, and a high, you know, population of students who come from impoverished backgrounds, a high ELL percentage as well. Hmm. Um, and tell me a little bit about the disabilities that you serve to have an idea of what's going on in your school. Uh, most students have learning disabilities, but there, is, there are some students with autism, um, with emotional disabilities, um, some ADHD, but mostly learning disabilities. And you say you're the only charter teacher? Um, so at my school, we have a pretty decent sized special education department. I'm one of the only ones who speaks Spanish at my school, um, but we have a pretty big um, department. Thanks. Um,
So, I mean, I have a, we have an idea about your uh, your school sort of it right now. Can you tell us a little bit about how the the strike started? I mean, how did the conversations started? I mean, how how things start brewing? I mean, I think it's been brewing over, I mean, a year or two. Um, you know, even last year, there's some large rallies, and a lot of this was due to overall conditions. The turnover, teacher turnover, was really insane at both of our schools, I would say. I mean, what's the ballpark? What's, what's the teacher turnover? Um, so within two years, over 40% teacher turnover. Wow. Um, and you would have teachers leaving every couple months, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. And with special education, there's very high teacher turnover, lots of substitutes. Um, on a given day, you might have 10 substitutes which is problematic because, you know, a lot of times they're, the students aren't receiving the instruction they should be receiving. Um, and I think that was a big factor in it. Um, and a lot of, frankly, to be frank, a lot of teachers were leaving for Chicago Public Schools and a lot of it for reasons of pay, um, workload, things of that nature. And would you say your case was kind of similar? Yeah, um, well, this is my first year at the school, but just in the school year, we had five teachers leave throughout the school year um and so it was just it, i've heard multiple times like people just you know teachers leave come and go even the students ask me like are you coming back or yes. like they would see like someone like well there goes another one right yeah. um and you really don't want that space to be like that um and you know like for you like you mentioned like 10 substitutes a day like we are so small in staff that we actually have online classes. That's the way mm. that our students received mm. like science or like math for half of the year, like really hardcore subjects that they need instruction for. Um, especially when you're teaching like a student that receives services, um, it's kind of like, well, how can I modify or accommodate when it's an online class mm. and they're mm. teachers in a video, you know? Um, so that was probably the biggest one for us is like, um, just seeing their faces of like, I don't get it. And then be, me being like, well, I don't get it either because an online teacher to like an actual teacher is very different like mm -hmm. curriculum. So that was like the biggest one in like the pay. I think, um, you know, like for me speaking, like I was getting paid almost 10 to $12,000 less. Um, and being a first year teacher, like I wasn't looking at pay, but like mm -hmm. seeing like my colleagues who've had families and struggling to like make ends met, I was like, oh, that shouldn't, it shouldn't be like that. Mm -hmm. And I would say especially, you know, people would look at other schools, the school down the block, mm -hmm. like Finkel is literally within a block or two of us, and some of them are making 10 to 20 grand more and working 45 minutes to an hour less, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that's also problematic when you have a family and so many of our teachers work second or third jobs, and you shouldn't be working extra jobs. You should be focusing on building your curriculum and writing engaging lesson plans and collaborating and we have so many teachers working extra jobs, and I don't think that's okay. Yeah, and I mean that, that was kind of the I was the main reasons that people are leaving, right? Mm -hmm. um, and how did it start? I mean, they were starting like conversations. I mean, how how did the the ball start rolling? And and when did the the, the special ed conversation enter the strike? I mean, I think part of it was looking at and comparing what other schools have. Right, so I think part of it was comparing, you know, even within special education, looking at what is some of the language they have around special education in the Chicago Public School contract or within other contracts, um, and you know, looking at the pay scales. I mean, it makes a big difference if you see someone working, you know, at the school down the street making ten to twenty grand more than you. 
Um, and then from there, you know, we, we were having those conversations, and I think those happened on a very frequent basis. I mean, maybe even a weekly basis, right? Um, but we started building from there into having rallies and kind of, you know, thinking bigger on how can we push back against this. And, and was it similar for you? Um, yeah, I think um, for us, like, we would meet um, even weekly to just kind of, like, this is what's going on. Like, we've been in negotiations. Um, and, you know, like Sarah said, I said your name right, yeah. Um, those conversations of, like, the resources that we lacked as a school just were brought up naturally. Because um, mm -hmm. it was, like, for us in our school, it was the second biggest thing, right? It was, like, pay scale, but then also, like, what are we missing being such a small school? And then serving this particular population of students with trauma and having no type of resources. Um, so it naturally just happened the conversation and, you know, me looking at like a traditional like uh, CPS school and realizing like, oh wow, like we have nothing compared to what, what they have, um, especially when it came to like serving our students um, with disabilities. Mm -hmm. and, and when did this, the special ed conversation started? Was it like from the beginning or was afterwards that we're going to strike, we're also going to ask for this? I mean, I think from the second I started working there, there were always conversations on students not receiving their services just from the get-go, right? Because there's just such a need and there's student, and you'd hear from the students saying, you know, I don't have help in this class and you'd hear from the teachers where, I mean, there were students who didn't have help in majority of their classes or who were failing classes. And for me, that really stuck out. And you, he, you, he, you heard special education teachers speaking about it. You heard general education teachers because they knew they were supposed to have a co-teacher. Or they knew something was wrong, right? Like, especially in the Spanish classes, there might be over 50% students with disabilities. And that was a huge Say problem. 50%? Yeah, over 50% with disabilities. And at that hold point... On, let, me, let me ask you mm -hmm. about that. Why there is more on the Spanish classes? So typically in this like classes like Spanish or art or classes like that, there often are, for some reason, more students with disabilities in one class. I don't know if it's based on how their other schedules are done. This happens frequently in other places, but I will say from what I've seen, charters break the law more on having a higher percentage than public schools. Public schools break the law as well, but I think charters is even worse and they get away with it. Mm. Was in your experience similar? The conversation about special was from the beginning, or it was it was definitely from the beginning, especially when I realized I was the only <laughs> special education <laughs> teacher, and so there was, you know, there's only so many ways that I could split myself to like meet the requirements for like my students' minutes, um, and so what we started doing was like looking at student schedules and figuring out like where can we like rearrange their classes so I can be in there. Um, so that would mean that I would be in a class, for example, an English class and there was like 20 students, maybe 10 or 11 of those students received services just so I could meet like the minutes and I would, you know, like attempt not to break the law when really it was, it was harder to have such a large, you know, um, amount of students in that classroom because then in that room I was being split 11 different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, when it came to my general education teacher, like um, giving her the resources and the tools to engage with the students as well and being like, hey, we're gonna have to like team ball it here because there's two of us, um, but half of your class um, receive services. So we need to make sure that we're meeting everyone's needs in there. Yeah, and when I hear that, I'm thinking about what, what were parents for them? Were the parents complaining about this? Were parents reaching out to you to complain or say my kid is not receiving the services that he deserves? 
I mean, in general, I'd say at the beginning there weren't too many complaints. I think there are at first more complaints from students, just not feeling like they weren't getting the help they need, or they might know, hey, I'm supposed to have help in math and there's not a second teacher, right? Um, over time, I think there were more parent complaints, and what we saw, especially in building up to the strike, is we started providing Know Your Rights informational sessions on them knowing, hey, if your child's supposed to have two teachers, they have to have two teachers. It's federal law. Um, charters are not allowed to opt out of that. And so as parents started learning more of their rights and their power, they started pushing back more. Um, and some, uh, some of our parents started calling the principal and CEO or case manager and demanding that their, their child's rights be served. And was there a response on that or things continue the same? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of times they try to ignore them, right? And so we even had parents speaking in front of the board and the CEO saying, hey, don't worry, we're going to fix this. And some of those were ignored. Um, now, some of the pushback, I, I will say, did work. And what we found even at our school is that they started cutting services and cutting minutes. So they might go from having, you know, help five days a week in all their classes to going to having help one day a week. Mm -hmm. And previously, a lot of parents didn't know their rights and didn't know, hey, like they can speak up and say, that's not okay. My child needs these services. Um, and so once they started, they started pushing back and the teachers and students started pushing back. In many cases, they stopped cutting the services. Um, they stopped pressuring the IEP teams to cut services. Hmm. Was, do you have similar experiences? Or? Um, my experience was a little, a little different. I mean, for sure, I would have conversations with the students and they would, you know, say like, I'm struggling here, like, I don't understand it. Um, but even like something I noticed with my population of students is that they didn't understand their rights either. Like mm -hmm. they didn't know how to read their IEP or um, even like some students didn't even know why they had one. So then I had to go in and like explain to them like this is why you're receiving services. This is what, you know, this legal document says. And then that's when they'd be like, wait, it's not happening. I'm like, no, yeah, it's, it's not happening, but there's one of me. So like... Um, with parents, because of the population of students I work with, some of our students might have like strained relationship with parents, um, and so like the communication there isn't as open like in a you know another charter school or another school, just because mm -hmm. we respect like you know um, the student not wanting. Or a lot of our students are 18, and you know they have um, their rights, um, their educational rights are to them. So empowering our students themselves to mm -hmm. like this is like you need to speak up when we have IEP meetings like mm -hmm. go to our co our co interim principals um, and, and talk about it right like there's there's not much we can do until you start speaking up um, and we did have some parents who were like wait what's happening like um, you know even they were surprised that there was only just one teacher mm -hmm. um, and they you know spoke to the co interim principals and I think like the response was like there's not much we can do as of yet. Um, and so, you know, a lot of them keep going back with like, well, next school year we'll have more special education teachers. But I think it's more than just that. Like you can have three teachers, but if the requirements aren't being met, like it doesn't matter how many teachers you have in there. Mm -hmm. so. Absolutely. And were you decided to strike? Were parents part of the strike or they support the strike? I mean, what were your experience with parents? Um, or they were pissed, I mean, maybe. I mean, I would say to start just with the students, we had a lot of students joining us on the strike lines. I mean, I say we had at least 20 to 30 students joining us. Um, and it kept increasing throughout the strike as well. 
Um, we had some parents joining us, but I would say it was majority students. Um, and during one day of the strike, I don't remember which day it was, maybe the second day, um, we did Know Your Rights training around special education for you know, both our schools, for the students, the teachers, and some parents came as well. And a lot of people were very surprised because they didn't know their rights around that. Mm -hmm. But even when parents couldn't come, because a lot of our parents work multiple jobs and things of that nature, every day I was getting, you know, messages from parents saying, hey, we support you. And, and actually, after the strike ended in the morning of, I got about 20 messages from parents saying, thank you so much for fighting for my, my child and fighting for special education. So they knew what we were fighting for. And I think part of that piece came from we fired parents before the strike at least five times. Um, our staff did. And it said, you know, about what we were fighting for, what were the issues, what we were fighting for, and included a lot around special education and ELL. Um, and there was a call number to the CEO, and tons of parents flooded the CEO with calls. Mm -hmm. So parents overall were very supportive of us. Did you have some experience? Um, for us, it was mainly our students versus like our parents. Um, and so, like, we would have these conversations, um, and sometimes they would just randomly close the door and be like, so are you going to update us because we were in the classroom? And so um, having those conversations on why we were going on strike and for them understanding it was more than just the pay scale. Like, that was the, of course, that's a big factor of it, but it was more than that and being open um, about, you know, like, special education laws that were being broken for, you know, for English learner students as well. Um, and so, you know, similar to like Sarah, we had students like, uh, you know, reach out to myself and my other co-teachers just being like, um, thank you for like supporting us and like for advocating for us. Um, and then like the day that we went back, they were like, we wanted an extra day. And they're like, no, we're just kidding. We, we didn't, we wanted to be in the classroom yeah. and seeing their like cute little smiles and, um, you know, them, you know, hugging you and just really affirming that what you did was right. Um, mm. it's probably the best result mm -hmm. out of everything. Just to clear up, can you tell us the claims or the, the things that you were asking for on with the strike? So um, around special education, the article that we demanded and we won was that they will follow all special education law. And the good part about that is it's all special ed law, right? So that they can't... Uh, this, I need to say, because this is very strange that a strike, I mean, no, it's bad, it's a strange, it's good, but that uh, you're pushing a school to follow the law through a strike, I never hear it before. I don't know, maybe you have more experience, but it sounds very strange. It's like um, pushing someone to do what the law requires them to do through a teacher strike. Well, and that's the interesting thing, is that when we're bargaining it, they're saying like, well, this is already law, you don't need this. But they knew why they were fighting against it, is because with, with having this in our contract, we could grieve it, and it actually puts more pressure on them. And so it could force them to follow laws such as they can't have more than 30% uh, students with IEPs within a general education classroom, right, or within a co-taught classroom, um, or this class size language around self-contained classes um, and things of that nature. And that was a huge win. I mean, it really was a huge win for us. And I think part of it wasn't just the contract language, but that we did the Know Your Rights trainings with the contract language. And so they knew when they were breaking the law. Mm. And I think that made a big impact because even after the strike, when some of our teachers had IEP meetings, mm -hmm. I was getting texts saying, hey, I think, you know, they're trying to pressure me to break the, the law in this way or trying to pressure me to cut minutes, and I know and I'm not going to let them do that. Mm -hmm. So it's also how teachers were empowered to say, no, I'm going to be here to fight for my kids and I know the rights, and I think that makes a huge difference. So our role in special ed, you have the, you, have, you, you ask 
to be able to create if you see as a teacher that they're breaking mm -hmm. the law, is that correct? You were the same, same yep, time? Yeah, okay. same. So we're under one contract. And beyond that, you also ask for more teachers or services? or Yeah, I mean, we won a ton. So, for example, wraparound services, we won based on a lot of their prof professional organizations. So for nurses, for psychologists, we had no nurse at our school. I don't know yeah, about your school. We don't have a nurse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a social worker acting as a nurse, or right? And yeah. we had students with diabetes and other issues. So we finally, we get, we're getting a nurse. Um, we're getting a psychologist, which we hadn't had. Um, we're getting also class size language where if you have over a certain number of students you actually get paid for every student per day which deters them from having large class sizes. Um, we reduce the school day and we won CPS pay so that will when that means stability I mean it means teachers won't be leaving it's more beneficial to stay um, and we want more resources as well for our classroom more books and things of that nature. Hmm. And what, what similar claim for you too? Or wins? Yeah, they were. Um, they're similar because we're under one contract, um, and so for us in particular, it was um, having more teachers, right? Like not having online mm -hmm. classes, you know, for our students. So um, that's why it was like a big thing that we won CPS pay, just because that means, like Sarah said, like stability for our teachers, like they won't, you know, be leaving, um, and also stability for our students, right? Like having yeah. a new teacher be five months or like every year, um, especially for students that receive services, one of the things we always talk about is like that we need to be consistent um, and the consistency isn't happening inside the classrooms because they're constantly seeing a new face. Mm. Um, so even, you know, just that and like the resources, um, we didn't have a nurse for like ever. <laughs> um, and so like there's, you know, like staff doing different positions being pulled into a hundred different ways and that can get very exhausting um, and at some point you're not even doing your own job efficiently because you're just so tired of like trying to fill all of these different holes mm. Mm. Um, so what is why do you think you ended up focused on SPED I know you were seeing all these misservices right but students with disabilities have been misserved throughout history right you can go to any school and not all schools, but a lot of the schools miss our students with disabilities. Why, or, or that the, 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 the strategies or services that they do, they're not enough for them, right? So, so why do you think that happened here in the charter sector, and not, for example, on a regular teacher, teacher strike from the district sector? I mean, I think part of it, since I've worked in both public and private sector, is that they break the law a lot more in the charter sector. So even before the strike, we, we send out a survey to tons of charters. I think it was over 20 charters. And just asking them questions on basic laws, whether they're following them, a majority, I mean, over 50, often over 70% of the schools were blatantly breaking special education law. Mm -hmm. And I saw that. I mean, the most egregious cases I've ever seen of laws broken in special education. Um, you know, having parents on their cover sheet saying they were there and they were never there. Mm. I mean, the most egregious cases I've ever seen. I think that's part of it. And we, we know that. I think the general education teachers and special education teachers know that this was really horrific, what was happening. And our schools have very high percentages of students with IEPs. Mm -hmm. And I see you should judge a school by how they treat their students with IEPs, right? Just like how you should judge a country with how they're they treat their impoverished people, you should judge schools by how they treat their students with disabilities. And if they are not treating them well, it has a ripple effect. If you have classes with over 50% students with IEPs, it affects the whole class, right? Um, and so I think that's why it was really important for us. Yeah, I think um, 
the reality and the unfortunate reality because it is a school and you're supposed to be providing for students is there is no revenue right like providing all of these resources for our students does cost more money right we need more special education teachers that's going to cost more we need something as simple as a manipulative like those are you know expensive and so i think that charter schools tend to break the law was by like more often it's just because they're seeing at how much money they're gonna have to waste right mm. and so like how do i save money well not by not doing it and hopefully not getting caught um and so I think that's like the sickening part is that they look at our students as revenue, whether you know they receive services or not. But when you see a student walk in with an IEP in their hand, like I'm assuming, right? Like what they see is like, okay, how much money yeah. am I going to spend on this student versus how much money is this student going to make me? Mm. Well, and even think about it. Like we had about nine to ten vacancies not filled, and they didn't fill them. So where'd that money go, right? And so. I mean, I overall still see charters as a privatization model, and it is a money-making model, to be honest with you. It's not, that is how it is different to public schools. And I think a lot of the charters are not filling the, these positions, they're not providing the resources, and they see that a lot of these students, unfortunately, as a dollar sign over their heads. Hmm. So. Um, how, how many days did you strike for? Were they the same? Three, right? Three, yeah. Three days? Okay. Seems like longer than three days. <laughs> three intensive days. Although I think we marched like over twenty-five miles, but right. yeah. I, I, I give you goals. four. I, I give you four days. For the I met my goal every single day. For yeah, the yeah. Uh, but it, that's pretty short strike. I mean, they were able to respond to that promptly. I mean, would you say so? The biggest difference, if you, I think, look at our strikes and other strikes that have happened around the country, or even within the city, is we had massive parent-student community support, and we mm. built that, right? If you look at other other strikes that have happened, it was just the workers, which is important. You clearly need a really strong worker solidarity base, but if because we are, we're teachers, right? You work with students, you work in the communities, you have to have that support. And we had so much support from the get-go, and we had people calling them daily, the CEO, the principal. We had petitions going, emailing all the Board of Education members every day, right? We had actions at the president of the board's place of business. I mean, we put so much pressure on them from not only our standpoint, from, but from the parent community standpoint, and that's what caused us to win. I honestly think that's what's caused us to win. Hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think, um, honestly, like, you know, people just seeing teachers stand together, like, well, what they want is just mm -hmm. more money, right? They, mm -hmm. they automatically assume when you're going on strike, it's because of the, like, the lack of, like, um, money, which is part yeah. of it. Um, but I think, like, building these relationships with our students and with the community, like, they really understood, like, there's more than just that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, the community definitely, you know, they would be there at, like, six in the morning with us and like they would bring like coffee and you know they they knew that we weren't you know getting paid and so like i had parents and like even some of my students right like reach out and be like like do you need food <laughs> do you need money um but even just the thought right that cross and and you know we were we were big in numbers and they were definitely intimidated and they were like okay it's, we can't continue this and i think it was also like our schools were closed and like you know it was mm -hmm. in middle of may like beginning of may so like really close to the end of the school year and so like students were losing instruction um and you know like at towards the end of the school year like it wraps around super quickly and they were like okay we need to get like our students back in our classroom mm -hmm. so let's negotiate that's great 
So what would you tell a parent of a student with a disability who is considering to send their child to a charter school? Mm -hmm. I mean, I would say, first of all, know your rights, right? And I would say that's within a charter or public school, but maybe even more so in a charter. Know your rights. Um, make sure you have copies of the IEP. Read over the IEP. And ask your child, hey, do you have... An you know, use simple language, but you have two teachers in this class, right? Because mm -hmm. um, they should have, you know, if they should have the co-taught class. Or do you have a small class, right? Um, and there's simple ways you can talk to your child about and find out if they are getting the services. Or if there's, or check their grades frequently. If there's a class they're failing, ask them, how many students are in your class? Are there two teachers? Are there one teacher? Right? Um, and to be blunt, like, even ask the special education teacher, ask the case manager, yeah. are all their services being met? Because by law in Illinois now, they're supposed to have sent a letter to the parents within 10 days of not providing services. Mm -hmm. Now clearly, frequently that is not happening, but I would ask the case manager, the principal, or someone in writing so you have proof, and ask for it back in writing. Because um, often, you know, they might break the law, but they're not gonna do it in writing, right? Mm -hmm. So make sure you ask for everything in writing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think know your rights and also like the big one is like, don't be afraid. I think a mm -hmm. lot of our parents and even sometimes our students are afraid um, because they're marginalized for, you know, having mm -hmm. a child that receives services or being a student that receives services, um, especially when it comes to like the Latinx community, mm -hmm. there's such a negative connotation Ooh. with what that means. And so like, stop being afraid. Um, there's nothing wrong with a student receiving services or having a child. Um, and like, know your rights and also be like, very communicative that's with your like your child or like with the teachers and not you know being afraid of being like okay what's going on um, and to say like I know my students um, or my child's needs are not being met why is that what are what are the action steps um, I think that's a big one is like okay what's the follow-up and like follow through um, regardless of what you know system your you know your child is placed in um, it's just I would say like don't be afraid mm. and don't yeah and don't be to like piggyback off that like don't be scared of the powers that be because sometimes the first question you ask like they you might get pushed back They're like don't worry we're going to fix it and it won't be fixed i mean you might have to keep escalating and go and speak to the principal or speak at the board of education or go to a rally or start a petition so don't just stop when you don't get your answer right away hmm. so what kind of advice would you give to other teachers um according to your experiences? Um, I mean, I think as long as, like, know the spread law, there's, you know, yeah. there's so much of it, but I think it's very important for a teacher to understand if something is being broken and why and how. Um, and, like, again, it goes back to, you know, for me, being a first-year teacher, like, I was always very nervous to, like, speak up, right? Like, am I, like, I know something's wrong, but, like, do I have the power or let alone the mm -hmm. knowledge to, like, speak about this um and so like i had to take my own advice like stop being afraid and just realize that we are the advocates for our students um and that means that we do it in various different ways whether that's inside the classroom or like talking to the principal talking to the parents um and you know like kind of like what sarah said if it doesn't work keep escalating at you know there's more than just you who sees what's wrong and so like there's power in numbers so yeah. go to your other teachers and be like hey like you know this isn't right and this is why. Um, mm -hmm. So what are we gonna do about it? 
Yeah, I would just second what you said. Power in numbers. I mean, even we did a lot of surveys even to like kind of, it almost validates your own thoughts. Like other people are in agreement with us or you have this, you have this data to show, hey, this percentage of teachers also says this is a problem or this law is being broken. And don't do things alone, especially if you aren't tenure at your school. Um, do things in groups. And a lot of times you'll find people who think similarly to you. Hmm. And what advice do you have for administrators? I would just say, like, trust in your teachers, trust in your parents, and you're going to have more problems <laughs> if you break special education law, right? And, and you know you should be doing what's best for the students. I mean, these students really need, need the help, and the laws are there for a reason. And talk to your teachers. Trust in them, right? Um, appoint them to leadership positions and, you know, let your special education teams make a lot of decisions because a lot of times they know what's best. They're working with the students on a daily basis. Um, I mean, the first one is like, don't break the law for sure, because um, they know that they're breaking it. Um, but also, like, communicate, right? Communicate with your teachers on like, um, what can you know? I think sometimes it's simple as asking the question of like, uh, what can we do to improve, you know, um, our our school within like special education or in general. So having those hard um, conversations, because sometimes they're not pretty and they might get ugly, but as long as you have the end in mind, which is like we want to provide for all of our students, um, you know, being not being afraid to have that conversation of like, okay, we're breaking the law, but how are we going to fix it? Mm -hmm. so. What about for parents? Any advice for parents? I mean, I think it's just similar. Yeah, don't be afraid. Power in numbers. Try to get a group of parents together. Like, don't go into the principal's office or case manager alone. Um, before our IEPs, like talk to your special education teacher, talk to your child and the general education teacher so you're all on board yeah. um, with the same goal before you go into that meeting. Because unfortunately, sometimes there is coercion or scare tactics to try to reduce services. Um, and even join some organizations that help with Know Your Rights training, like Raise Your Hand or other community organizations as well. Yeah, um, I think especially for parents that are like Latin Access. Um, something I would always get is like parents are afraid to ask for things that are mm -hmm. supposed to be like translated mm -hmm. and like not yeah, like saying like hey I need it in translation to like understand I think um, just get as much knowledge as you can whether that's like joining yeah. an organization that can help you understand what's happening in the law or even just talking to your teacher um, and saying like I don't understand it like can you help me explain it like that's power in itself is like the knowledge um, to better you know for your student or your child. Mm -hmm. And what advice do you have for policymakers, people at the board, people doing education policy? Quit your jobs and get an elected school board. <laughs> um, I mean, just do what's right for kids. And if you're not in it for kids, if you're trying to privatize or make a you know a dollar off the backs of kids, you should not be in the profession you're in. Um, and talk to the experts, and the experts are the parents, students, and teachers, right? Um, the community. Um, it's not the privatizers, it's not the charter operators or any or anything like that. Like you really should talk to the experts and they know what's going on in the schools. Yeah, it would be the same, right? Like know why you're in it and then like communicate with the teachers, the parents and like how are, it's asking that question, like how can we improve our schools? Um, parents and like even students have so much like they would do, you know, I would have students be like, if I could change this, I would change X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And so, like, just having that conversation um, 
and you know it might not look pretty but it's what needs to be done mm. so what do you see how do you see the future of charters and students with disabilities serving students with disabilities do you think it's going to improve I mean, I think overall within our schools it will, just because people know their rights and they do have the contract articles to back it up. Um, and it might take, you know, some pushes, push on that and even maybe filing of grievances and more know-your-rights trainings, but I think it will improve overall for our students with disabilities. And I think administration knows we, that we're, we know our rights more overall. Um, and I think even within the state, right, like we had a – investigation inquiry into special education how the district was breaking the law and so you know I hope and I, th I think it will improve but we also have to hold um, administrators feet to the fire and even policymakers feet to the fire to ensure all the state laws are followed yeah um, I definitely think that our fight is not over but it's like towards the correct direction um, having those conversations and also like holding each other accountable whether that's you know policymakers administrations or mm -hmm. school teachers right within ourselves um, within our schools I think that there is an improvement that you know I'm looking forward to seeing next school year and if not I mean we can always file for grievance and be like remember what we signed um, uh, but in in general I think that um, we're headed towards the right direction especially having these conversations within a Latinx community like I know when I was in high school, like, no one would even want to speak about this, like, you know, at my family, you mm -hmm. know, dinner table. Um, and so, like, having those conversations within these communities um, is really important and um, just getting as much knowledge as possible um, to be able to fight back. Hmm. Any final thoughts or your experiences, things that I didn't ask you and you may want to say? I would just say, you know, I think a year ago or more, we didn't think this was possible almost. I don't think we ever thought we could have won this much. Um, and so I would just say my advice is fight for the impossible. But the only way you can win the impossible is through, you know, doing it as a coalition with the students and parents and community. Yeah, um, I think, um, being a, you know, last year I was about to graduate from college. So um, there's no one year that would be like that. I'm like, yeah, you're going to be on a strike and make changes um but you know you didn't I, take a class about striking ah, right. they, sh they should offer that in college yeah right how to properly strike um what, for charter what clothes to dress the right. to like wear comfortable shoes yeah running shoes and you know track your minutes and goals and stuff because you will meet them um but no i think um the biggest thing like especially for first year or like you know teachers that aren't tenured is um don't be afraid to speak up for what's right mm -hmm. like um our, we're the advocates for our students. We always say that, you know, we're, if you're a teacher, I would hope that you're in it for the kids, right? So um, what bigger way than to show that you love and care by getting them the resources and tools that, that they deserve. All right. Thank you very much. It's a very exciting conversation. And thank you for all your work. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center podcasts and other resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to a podcast, click on the podcast link located on the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center website. The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, 
a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center at Indiana University, is funded by the U.S. Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout the 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education, S004D11002. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This podcast and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for the use for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank Indiana University School of Education, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen King-Torius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, Associate Director of Engagement and Partnerships Dr. Tiffany Kaiser, and Instructional and Graphic Designer Dr. Jasur Dagli for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.